Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Warfighter podcast with myself, Colin Hillier, and Tom. Hello, that is Tom Constable, just in case you forgot my surname. So how's it going, mate? Yeah, it's good. Now, now this is, we, we, we made a slight not error not we don't make errors but but we said la- the last episode on, on that episode we said it was the last one what we meant is the last one of the main series yes. this one is actually the last one of this season which is our education episode confusing maybe but on the plus side it's a bonus right it's a bonus episode i hope this has caught people unawares yeah <laughs> on that note i think it's important to mention you know we've come this is the, this is the end of the kind of the uh, the bonus education series and actually it's been i don't want to say surprisingly well received but you know i wasn't sure how going deeper into a topic w- would be received from a podcast but the, the the industry really have picked it up and the listeners have picked it up and ran with it and i've i've been really pleasantly surprised by the positive feedback we've received by this and i think it's important to thank the people that made this possible which is Conductor. The guys over at Conductor have been brilliant throughout the whole series and, and specifically their founder and CEO, Rob Pratton. You know, I approached him before we even had anything, just a name. And he got the idea that got the concept and supported it from day one, which which gave us that confidence to move forward. So I really do recommend in the show notes will be the link to, to Robert's episode and also uh, to the YouTube video where it shows where Colin and I tested out their crisis exercise software and put Colin under pressure. If that's something you think your organization may be interested in, I do recommend you having a look at that. So Colin, what are we talking about today? Well, we recorded this a while back and I think when we did it and, and spoke to the lovely Len Granowetter from Mock Technologies, we didn't really know how relevant this would be, but it turns out it's becoming very relevant. So it's all about platforms. It's all about how the simulation world is changing, really to look at how they pull together what is essentially a, a bunch of disparate technologies that don't necessarily interoperate. Okay, we've got standards, um, but how do we move beyond that? So probably right to also mention that this is sort of the theme for the Warfighter Live panel that's coming up at DSET. So another surprise episode is coming up, isn't it, Tom? <laughs> bonus episode. Yeah, another one. Uh, bonus. And one thing I've learned working in this industry is the phrase, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And that's, so no, we definitely organize this to line up perfectly with our DSET episode. It's worth mentioning, I suppose, that DSET is the Fence Simulation Education Training event held at Bristol in the UK. It's later this month. We are going to go live. This is our first ever live podcast. <laughs> Knowing how much editing each episode takes, I'm slightly petrified as to <laughs> what's going to happen. But also, I'm really excited because I hope that people, listeners will listen to this and we, we've got a live audience that's going to be there. The tagline very much is, kind of leave your allegiances at the door. Now, that might be quite naive, but I want people to come here not with their corporate hats on or their defense hats or preconceptions. Just bring your experience and let's spitball and share ideas around platforms. What does it actually mean? Is it really, really kind of the next step and the savior for defense simulation? And is it going to streamline things and make them efficient? And if they are, that you know, great. Where's the threats? Where's the opportunities? And that's kind of hopefully what we're going to try and achieve with the Warfighter Live at, at DSET. And Colin, I'm going to come to you and ask you about the date and the time for that in a second. Um, so you get Googling. But as we've said with all education episodes, this is a wonderful primer with Len to get your kind of creative juices flowing and thought processes for what is a platform. So the date for your diary is Wednesday, the 7th of June in the afternoon. So if you're doing nothing else, be there, please. Uh, we'd love to see you. And it's the usual old faces plus, plus a whole bunch of new ones, I think, and a bit of a bit of an off-piece session for us. Everything's a bit of an experiment see how well it works it, it could be an absolute riot <laughs> that is the plan i did ask whether or not we could have the bar open early a little bit earlier but uh, we, i got i got a flat no however we are gonna have aggressive coffee on on standby ready for this 
Coffee and biscuits. And, and just to clear things up, it's going to be recorded live. And so please do get to DSET and, and be part of the audience if you can. The link to the event will be in the show notes. However, if you're not there and can't make it for the event, we will be going out as a bonus podcast episode uh, in a couple, of, a couple of weeks after the event. Blending the, the virtual with the live. Look at that. Beautiful. We better get on to Len. Uh, I think he he talks much more authoritatively because he's one again one of these people that actually done it knows his stuff. Len covers a whole breadth. I think a nice a nice end to the the season as well in terms of some of the themes. Yes. Without further ado, well, I'm very pleased to introduce for our next education episode Len Granoetta from Mock Technologies, who is the CTO. Len, how are you doing? I'm um, great. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Before we start, I think we were going to talk about platforms, but can you just give a bit of a background on what you do and a bit of your history? That'd be great. Sure. So I've been in the modeling and simulation domain my entire career, uh, almost 30 years now, and I've been at, at this company, Mock Technologies, for that whole time. So I'm one of these rare guys that's been at the same company for an entire career. Uh, and we build simulation platforms, simulation applications. We provide software that helps people build training systems, experimentation systems, course of action analysis, wargaming, et cetera. Uh, and we've got a whole suite of tools for things like 3D graphics and simulation engines and physics and dynamics and behaviors and all that terrain. And we can talk about how some of that fits in. That's kind of our background. So the context for this is, I guess we're moving from a world where we have had products, software products, applications. I think we're still going to have those, but we're the sort of theme seems to be talking around platforms and what that means in defense. Again, one of these words that are probably used poorly, you know, and no one really understands what they mean. So I think that's the objective of this is to, to sort of define how we would go about defining and creating platforms. But maybe if you want to introduce a sort of where we are today with platforms in defense. Okay, sure. Yeah, definitely people mean different things. And, you know, sort of at the top level, right, if you think about all the, the software pieces that you need to build some simulation application, to build a flight simulator or a first-person shooter or a ground vehicle simulator or whatever it may be. There's lots of elements to that, right? There's what we think of as the simulation platform itself, which is kind of the runtime environment that manages the synthetic environment. It manages the terrain, the weather, and the entities and objects that are executing their behaviors and their you know, tasks and things like that within that environment. So we kind of think of that as a simulation platform. Sometimes people talk about the interoperability platform as, as a platform, right? Something like DIS or HLA or, you know, some of the more, you know, newer cloud-centric interoperability platforms that have been developed over the past several years. Uh, and those are sort of, a, that's kind of a different kind of platform, but I would sort of use that word there too. And then, you know, we often talk about a deployment platform, right? Are you deploying your system on just a laptop or are you deploying it on virtual machines running in a closet or you're deploying it on a, on a public cloud somewhere? Uh, are you containerizing your, your applications and deploying it that way? We kind of think of the, the world as, as being divided into these three platforms. And, you know, I think probably most of the focus of this conversation may end up being on the the simulation platform, because there's probably more variety out there and there's more sort of interesting questions and problems to talk about there, but think of those three. And then, but to the question of what is, what is meant by a platform, why do we even use that word? And has that distinguished from applications? I think of a platform as a thing you build upon, a foundation, right? It's not an end user application. It's not, okay, a flight simulator isn't a platform, but the graphic system or the hardware or the interoperability software or the, the reusable or reconfigurable pieces that you might use upon which to build your simulation applications, that's kind of what I think of as a platform. And we've kind of spent our careers here trying to build such platforms, right? We at Mock generally aren't, uh, you know, at least historically, we haven't been a company that have built this simulator or that simulator or this application, but rather we build a reusable set of tools, of platforms, of software development kits, of APIs, 
uh, upon which various system integrators can build their applications, and they can build multiple types of applications for multiple domains on top of that same common platform. And it's probably just worth clarifying when, I guess, we're not talking about a single environment. There's probably a differentiation we can make there. By single environment, do you mean sort of a single program or a single sort of end goal? Yeah, because I guess in the past, we've had programs which seek to sort of Instead of having multiple options, we 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 build one to end end the argument, end right, one right. for all. And this is this is different. Yeah, this is I think one of the questions that a lot of policymakers are kind of struggling with these days. And you know, do you if you need to build different simulation applications, you know, different simulators for different vehicles, if you need to do you know aircraft as well as ground vehicles as well as human characters on the ground, if you need to do electronic warfare and and sort of other elements of battlefield simulation, is there a benefit to sort of building all of those separate maybe end user applications on top of a common platform, on top of a common common engine, you might say, or are you sort of dumbing it down too much? Right by doing so, and are you better off saying, "Well, no, I'm going to build this application on kind of a purpose-built platform, a purpose-built engine that you know lets me build the best flight simulator I possibly can, but isn't really amenable to building you know simulations that run on the ground or can do room clearing within buildings and all that." And I think that's been a debate that's been going on. It's not new; that's been going on for you know 20 plus years. I think historically that answer has sort of always come down one direction, and maybe in the past five to ten years that's been evolving quite a bit. The reason in the past it came down in one direction was that there was really no one platform. It didn't exist you know, to have a, a software foundation that was flexible enough to be able to build a flight simulator or a first-person shooter that can go inside of buildings. There were companies that did image generators, IGs for air platforms, and they sort of focused on the air. And it was all about never dropping a frame. And it was you made whatever compromises you had to to achieve that, including saying, yeah, I'm not going to do grass on the ground and I'm not going to do building interiors or or uh, maybe interiors of vehicles or, or human characters or whatever. Or at least if you do those things, they're going to be pretty low fidelity of a type that's not going to be acceptable if you're on the ground walking around as a human character. And then uh, on the flip side, you had game engines and you had other applications that mostly focused on the, the really high fidelity on the ground stuff with all the high fidelity graphics techniques. You know, you had physics-based rendering and you had cascading shadow maps and you had, you know, all these, uh, you know, bump maps and, and specular maps and all that to make things look as good as possible. But then sometimes those weren't able to keep up the performance in the air for high flyers or for sensors, and they didn't have capabilities to do, I don't know, electronic warfare and realistic sensor visualization based on material classification and those kinds of things. Or maybe they couldn't do whole earth simulation because one of the trade-offs you made in order to get the fidelity you needed on the ground was to limit the size of a play box, right? So I think the history is that you had sort of dedicated point solutions that you know were built for on the ground-based simulation. You had dedicated point solutions that were built for aircraft. And what started to become difficult was when people started to say, okay, we really need to do multi-domain simulation. That's not just a nice to have, but that's, we're doing collective training. You have forward observers and JTACs on the ground talking to aircraft pilots and other aircrew. And you really want those to have a consistent environment. You can't sort of live with, oh, well, the guys on the ground have, you know, more grass and trees. And that doesn't really correlate with the guys in the air who maybe are looking down at a target and, oh, maybe they can see it because there's no tree in the way. But the JTAC doesn't see the target because there is a tree in the way that doesn't work very well. So these correlation issues have been around forever. And for a long time, people were sort of forced to live with that because there wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great other option. But these days, there's sort of more technology out there where you can say, okay, here's a common engine, a common platform that is flexible enough, that's sort of broad enough to be able to build a flight sim and a ground vehicle sim and a first person shooter and a dome based forward observer simulator or whatever uh, on the same common platform. So it'd be useful just to understand where you see that delineation between what's in the platform and what's on the sort of application 
just so we get a feel for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much a slight, you know, a sliding scale, right? But I think the main thing is, you know, this idea of a common synthetic environment. You know, there are so many of these programs out there these days that are kind of using that term. They're like, yeah, I want a common synthetic environment. You know, we at Mach, we were the prime contractor on the uh, U.S. Army STE synthetic training environment, that program's common synthetic environment program. And that was sort of a good example of this, where in this case, it was the U.S. Army saying, look, historically, they had essentially three major programs for collective training. They had a program called Gamester Training, which was for the infantry and first person people on the ground. They had AVCAT, which was for the aviation platforms. And then they had CCTT, Close Combat Tactical Trainer. And that was for, you know, for vehicles, for multi-crew vehicle simulators. Those were all sort of separate programs and they were built on separate architectures. They used different image generators. They used different terrain strategies. And then they had a couple of overarching pieces that supported those programs. So for example, there was a a terrain management program called SE Core, Synthetic Environment Core, whose job it was in part to sort of take terrain source data and turn that into appropriate terrain databases for each of those programs and many more and various programs across the enterprise. And, you know, there was some commonality that you could achieve by starting with the same source data, even if you had to output it in different format, output it in different formats. As the world got more complicated, that strategy became more difficult because, you know, if the only thing you ever expected in your virtual world was, you know, elevation and imagery. Well, it's pretty easy to get all these different simulators, even if they use different formats. You know, this one uses OpenFlight, that one uses FBX, that one uses CDB or whatever it is, right? It was fairly easy to get them to correlate to the extent that the data was available because if all you have is elevation and imagery back in the day, as long as you got your polygons to kind of be in the same place, you were pretty good. But as demands increased for fidelity and now you needed to know where every blade of grass was and what it was made of and and whether that window is made of glass and can be seen through or whether it was just, you know, a texture on the side of a building, you know, and, and what the thermal properties were of different parts of the terrain. And you needed, you know, sort of millimeter level procedural detail on the terrain scan on the ground so that it looked like you were walking over rocks and gravel rather than just a brown polygon. When the demands increased over many years, this idea that you were going to get sort of correlation by just kind of agreeing on the source data started to become difficult, Right. Because in order to get the fidelity you need and the performance you need, you know, it's sort of impossible to have a terrain database that stores, well, it's not impossible, but it takes an enormous amount of data that's impractical to store all that data. No, you know, most people don't build terrain databases, you know, that are high fidelity that stores information about where every blade of grass is, right? What you do instead is you store information saying that this is a grassy area, this is a grassy field, or this part of the terrain is covered with forest. And then the software at runtime can dynamically generate that procedural detail to supplement the static source data, right? So yes, that means that the software can place grass where the terrain database tells you to place grass. It means that we can place trees with a certain density and a certain tree type based on biomes, based on land use data that we get from source data. So the fine detail you might think of as geotypical, right? Even though the data that's driving it is all geospecific. But because there's almost always some typical detail added, even if it's only at the very fine level, that introduces this potential for lack of correlation between different simulators and different systems that are built on different engines, right? If somebody's built on Unreal and somebody's built on Unity and somebody's built on our software and somebody's built on, on VBS, for example, even though those tools are presented with the same source data, the same information telling you land use and, and elevation and imagery and shape files and all that, those tools might make different decisions at runtime about how to render that data that's being presented with. Uh, you know, I gave some examples about vegetation. Another example might be buildings. If you haven't gone and done a, a LIDAR scan or something to generate 3D geometry for geospecific buildings everywhere, Right? What's pretty common is to start with something like shapefiles or OpenStreetMap that tells you the type of the building, maybe the footprint of the building and the height of the building for every building in a city. And then it's up to the runtime software to quickly at runtime say, okay, oh, right, that's a th three-story building and it's labeled as residential. I'm going to go to my library of residential buildings and put one of the typical buildings in the right place. 
So the location of the building, the type of the building, and the height of the building, and the footprint even might be geospecific, but the actual texture on the side, if you haven't spent all the time and money to get geospecific images of every building in the terrain, which you're generally not going to do for throughout an entire large terrain, you might do that for an area of interest, but, but people generally don't do that for very large areas. Um, you rely on, these, on, on sort of you know, driving the, the micro-geotypical decisions based on macro geospecific data. And like I said, when different platforms do that differently, you end up with correlation issues. That building doesn't look the same in these two systems. Maybe that doesn't matter if you're just flying over it, but maybe it does matter if you're trying to do close air support or you're trying to do you know, room clearing or walking into a building or whatever else. So that has created more of a demand for you know, people to say, okay, maybe we should build all these simulators for different domains or different aspects of my, my virtual environment on a common platform so that everyone, the flight sim and the, the ground vehicle sim and the sensor simulation and the UAV sim, whatever, that they all literally have the same synthetic environment. They see this, they're all using software that's making the same decision about how to represent that building in 3D and how to put some really high fidelity grass and sand texture on the ground, how to do waves in the ocean. That's another thing that people often do dynamically in their, in their runtime software. So having that, that common synthetic environment helps to solve all those problems. But to be fair, there's a trade-off there because it may be the case that there's something that exists that's a point solution that works just for you know building interiors that gives you even better fidelity or even higher performance or even more functionality. But if you use that, now you're stuck with these correlation issues. I think that's the balance that people are trying to figure out. But I would say the trend seems to be more towards if we don't have to make too many compromises in fidelity, let's try to have commonality. And so the race is really for generic platform providers like ourselves to provide enough fidelity and enough capability that people don't feel like they're giving up that, you know, that if somebody's giving up that last ounce of, of fidelity they could have gotten if they use this point solution for this part of their engine, that that downside, that compromise is more than made up for by all the benefits of commonality. The fact that your interoperability problems are largely already solved because you're using a common engine and your correlation problems are largely solved and you don't have to worry about sort of mismatches in fidelity across systems. You don't have to worry about fair fight issues. And as some of these common broad platforms are getting better and more and more capable, it's an easier decision to say, oh, right, I'm, maybe I'm not even giving up anything. Maybe maybe the common engine I'm using now has everything I need for all the domains. I think you said it there because other questions were you talking about a common engine or, or actually multiple engines of common data source, but where we think things going is actually you have to have the consistencies in the engine the way it draws things but you can plug in lots of services around that to provide more whatever you need for yeah. functionality yeah so that that's i guess a really important part of the definition of what a platform is right a platform almost has to be because it's sort of this common environment this common engine that allows you to build different types of applications on top of it you have to be able to customize it uh, in many different ways. And again, you know, for us, we sort of started that way, right? There's almost a race going on in the world, I think, between those of us who started, you know, years and years ago with a common platform that did a, that, that did all the, kept track of all the bookkeeping, kept track of your terrain and your environment and your weather and your, you know, the networking, user interface and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, maybe 20 years ago, if you looked at our platform, it was just as broad as it is today, but it wasn't as deep, right? It didn't have as much built-in functionality. So we would go to customers and say, hey, if you need commonality, you know, we're your guys, but you might have a lot of work to do to build in the dynamics for the vehicles you need or the behaviors for various units or even just other types of capabilities. You know, I, you know, you needed to add local weather areas or something. We always had, you know, software APIs where software developers can customize our system and add that stuff. But sometimes that, you know, would get more expensive, you know, back in the day because there wasn't enough built in functionality. But over the course of years and years, platform providers like us have been racing to add more and more built in functionality so that the gap that any user might have to fill to meet their specific needs is really only the, the very specific stuff that doesn't really even belong in a common platform. 
you know, you've got some very specific algorithms for some, some new vehicle type, or you've got some custom overlay you're building for a sensor pod that is being prototyped or, or something, or just adding, you know, something that, that's, that's more specific to the use case that you're trying to meet. So I think platform providers have been sort of racing over many years to build in enough built-in functionality that it can compare reasonably well with more point solutions that might have been built from the beginning to, to solve a particular narrow use case, but didn't have maybe have the breadth built in to allow users to customize that to meet other use cases. At the same time, there's other folks who probably, who built some of those point solutions who have been kind of racing to go the other way to say, okay, how can we make our software more extensible, more flexible, have it be more configurable so that it can meet use cases other than the one it was maybe particularly built for. And I think that's, you know, to be honest, I think it's a healthy dynamic for our industry, for our community, because it gives people choices. And, um, and I, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. I don't think one always wins. You know, you might be in a situation where, okay, my entire simulation is I'm doing, I don't know, uh, talking to really high fidelity avatars of, of human characters within buildings, but I kind of want to go outside and look at an aircraft fly overhead or something, you know? Well, if that's the case, it's yes, it's multi-domain, but it's really primarily one, and you might be okay using whatever engine might have been built specifically for for the first person on the ground stuff. But if you're more truly multi-domain, if your if your end goal really is collective, and you're doing tactile training across you know across domains, and and it's sort of equally valuable for multiple types of trainees, or or if it's a wargaming system for different types of experimentation, then the commonality again starts to sort of dominate decision making. Yeah, so I guess I guess the multi-domain thing really is about what we're going to do in the future because if you look at current training usually yes technically if it's multi-domain but usually it's heavily weighted towards one so you might have land training that has an air component or air training that has you obviously has to reference the land but even within a domain this problem has existed and the problem within a domain has been less about a technology gap that's existed for years and years right like i said earlier when you're talking about having multi-domain stuff there might literally have been different platforms that have been better tailored for one or the other but within a domain right you see countries or programs or whatever using different platforms you know different image generators different cgfs computer generated forces different sim engines or own chip sims even to do similar types of aircraft just by virtue of how program management works, right? The fact that there might be a vendor or supplier chosen to build this type of aircraft simulator and they get to choose what what software they're using as the prime contractor usually. And, and there might be another aircraft that's kind of similar. Maybe they're both fighter jets even, but they chose different platforms upon which to build their simulators just because of you know other reasons, familiarity, just some particular features. But either one, if you looked at it, might have been possible to use across both because it wasn't a really different set of features. Um, and I think there's you know a lot of this sort of common synthetic environment stuff that we're seeing starts within a, within a single domain. So one really good example of that is the UK Gladiator program, formerly known as .CR, DCSNS, the core systems and services for sort of all, all air simulation platforms or all air simulation programs within the UK Air Force at this point within the Royal Air Force about I don't know I guess it's probably four years and four years ago now you know they had a, a competition to provide what they call these common systems and services which really does mean a, a common platform upon which they plan on building a variety of different flight simulators, flight training devices, and other other aspects. We've been heavily involved in that the, the Gladiator program. So that program was awarded about four years ago to. Uh, Boeing Defense UK, and they're delivering a system based on on our Mach 1 software platform. But regardless of which platform they had chosen, right, the goal was to have this sort of centralized decision about what platform to choose. And by platform here, they meant a variety of pieces that were all sort of built together to be consistent. That includes a you know terrain strategy, image generator, CGF, computer generated forces, tactile data link solution, uh, and networking. Right, you sort of pull all all those together, and that really gives you a simulation platform. And so they had a single contract, a single program to deliver the platform, 
right? Because companies like us are good at delivering platforms, but then they're having separate programs to actually deliver the simulators that might be built on that, those platform. And, and to me, that makes a lot of sense, actually, right? Because it's hard to find a single company who's both really good at developing reusable, scalable SDKs and is also good at executing, you know, building flight simulators or whatever the type of simulator might be to a way that meets specific government requirements, right? Those are typically integrators. They have to deal with hardware and programmatics and, you know, acceptance testing and all this other stuff. That's really important to be able to get a, a flight training device signed off on. But that's often not the same company that's building the core engines, that's building the image generator or that's building the CGF or, or really a, a reusable platform that, that encompasses all those elements in a consistent way. So to me, that strategy makes a whole lot of sense. And they're also not being too draconian about it, which I think also makes sense, right? Because even as a, as a vendor of a platform, right, we don't like to argue that, oh, well, our stuff's the best at everything. It isn't, right? It, nobody's is. <laughs> so I think what the Gladiator program is doing and what the Royal Air Force strategy is on this is to say, yes, we are going to have a set of common platform, a common set of systems and services. We're going to encourage the different flight simulation programs to use that platform. But you know, how firmly that is mandated probably depends a little bit on the goals and, and the budgets and, and the particulars, right? There's probably not a good reason to deviate from using a common CGF, right? Because you know, if you're providing the threats or the targets or whatever else, you could build your actual flight chain device on whatever you want and still sort of interoperate over things like HLA. But specifying a specific IG or a specific ownership model or, or, or a platform upon which to build your specific ownership models is a little more intrusive on the simulators. And while I think there's a desire and guidance to say, okay, use this common engine uh, wherever possible, or if there's any doubt, you know, use the common engine. I think it's also likely that there will be certain cases because of you know, legacy investment, because of budgets, because of other things where they're gonna say, okay, in this particular case, you still have to play in the environment provided by the common platform, but maybe you need to build an adapter to do that instead of building the entire thing based on it. I would have to imagine that that'll happen in certain cases. And I guess having that approach also has benefits down the road through life. So you've got modularity, you don't have to replace the whole thing. If, if one thing isn't up to scratch, you can just replace, you know, the, you yeah, know, absolutely. the weather or the terrain. You don't have to throw everything out that you've worked on. Yeah, I would say that that is a, you know, that, that sort of modularity is, is, is important, but it's almost orthogonal to whether it is a platform in the first place, right? So you could have a common platform that's really horizontal, but more closely ties together those pieces than you'd really want, right? So in all the sort of RFPs and RFIs that we've dealt with and the programs that we've executed on in the past, maybe certainly five or six years, saying, okay, yes, we want a common platform, but there's some characteristics we want of those platforms. And one of those characteristics is a MOSA approach, a modular open systems approach, modular open systems architecture. That has become more common as well. People don't like monolithic systems for exactly the reason you just talked about, right? Because yes, it's all great to say I've got this single common platform, but if you feel like you're putting all your eggs in one basket, then if it turns out that there's some aspect of that platform that over the next five years or 10 years falls behind, maybe something doesn't keep up in visual quality or it doesn't keep up in the level of physical fidelity, you know, physics fidelity, your sensor fidelity, wouldn't it be nice to have the ability to keep a common platform, but to sort of replace some element of it. So now all the applications that are built in that platform inherit some improvement that we might make to some element of it. I'm going to replace the terrain server. I'm going to replace the, which HLA RTI I'm using or something, right? These are all possible. And, you know, again, from our perspective, you know, we at Mach have had that philosophy from the beginning because our job for all these years, you know, for 20 or 30 years, wasn't really, hey, going, go execute this simulation program, build the simulator. It was really provide a set of tools that the integrators can use to help them, them build their simulations. So we learned early on that if we said to a customer of ours or a potential customer, 
hey, you've got to use everything of ours or nothing, right? They would have said, well, okay, nothing then because we already, and because almost every integrator, almost every defense contractor has some piece of technology that they've built internally. Maybe they've built an internal CGF and they know they need to use that. Maybe they've built an IG, you know, if you're CAE or flight safety or somebody like that. Or maybe you, you have expertise in ownership flight dynamics or vehicle dynamics and you know you're going to want to use your own piece for that. If a vendor, a supplier like, like us goes and tells you, okay, well, no, sorry, we, that's part of our whole system. You can't replace that. They're going to say, well, okay, it's a non-starter. So we, you know, we learned that 25 years ago or more, which is why we've always thought of our platform as a suite, right? We, we do use the term the Mach 1 platform, you know, in our marketing and all that kind of stuff, right? But what that really means is it's not, it's not some monolithic thing. It really is an overarching name for a suite of individual tools that we can deliver and propose separately sort of or together. There are lots of customers of ours, for example, who use our VR Forces CGF, even though they're using something else for the IG or the ownership. There are customers of ours who use our networking tools, even though they have their own everything. You know, we have almost every combination and we're sort of equally happy to, to support those folks because that's the way this market works. That's the way this, this world, world works. That's where the demand is. Now, that being said, we find, you know, our customers, I think, have come to us and said, hey, but we, we, we find there are advantages if those different pieces were built in a way where they were built to work together. And to some degree, they always are across the industry, even from different vendors, right? Lots of vendors will, will go tell you, okay, well, our stuff is HLA compliant. It's DIS compliant. We use some common standards for terrain, whether it's you know CDB or FBX or GLTF or, or whatever it is, right? So therefore, it's not all or nothing. You could use our tools with somebody else's. And that's usually true. We do that all the time, right? There's plenty of people who use VBS4 with VR forces or they'll use somebody else's IG with our stuff. In fact, you know, half the Air IG vendors use our DI guy software for doing human characters. And because we because we, we support that that human character module as its own thing that can be that could work not only in our own IG but in others in other people's IGs as well. So that's sort of really important, I think, not only for us but but for the industry. That being said, the more capabilities you have, the more advantages there are to when all those elements were built to a common design, to a to a unified design. So let me just give you a couple of examples of that. So a few years ago, we introduced a product called VR Engage, which is basically a, a multi-role virtual simulator. That allows players to play the role of a driver of a tank or the pilot of an aircraft or a sensor operator or a first-person infantry person. So that's as opposed to VR Forces, right, a CGF, which controls all the AI characters, all the non-player characters, right? And historically, I think a lot of programs have used a CGF from one supplier and a, and a, a player station, a, a virtual simulator from somebody else, even if it's just a role player station, even if it's just for sort of desktop role playing. And one of the reasons that we built our VR Engage software is because we got feedback from users to say, oh, well, what I really want to do is I want to do one unified laydown. I want to lay down my scenario without kind of regard for which entities are going to be controlled by players versus the CGF. And I want to even switch back and forth at runtime between whether a single entity is CGF controlled or AI controlled, or sorry, or, or player controlled. And although that's possible with tools like HLA ownership transfer and, and other things, it's more often the case that those capabilities sort of aren't built into various systems. Some first person shooter wasn't built to do ownership transfer or some flight sim wasn't built to give up control to the CGF and then take it back when a player wanted to take control of that entity as a, as a role player supporting the white force or whatever. So we built our system to do that. So what we sort of tell people is we've sort of met that need where you could do your lay down in a single scenario authoring tool. And in our case, it's in VR forces, right? You know, kind of instructor operator station, scenario authoring station. You do all your lay down and then at runtime, you can bring up the, the virtual simulator, the role player station, see the list of entities that are in the scenario and say, I want to control that one. And, you know, you click engage and, and now you're driving that, that truck or controlling that human character. So that, that unified laydown, unified scenario control is important. Similarly, like the instructor or, or in the case of, you know, wargaming experimentation, the person who's just managing the exercise might want to say, yeah, I want to, you know, drag and drop or select or create faults or restore some entity in the same way, regardless of whether it's a CGF entity or whether it's a player entity. And again, in a more heterogeneous system, 
you know, you might need two different user interfaces. Oh, let me go to OneSaf and restore the, the CGF entity, or let me and let me go to the VBS UI or something to restore the, the player's entity. People wanted to unify that through a common user interface and, and common control. So with a common platform, you, you ought to be able to bring up a single user interface and say, without a whole lot of integration, because people do achieve this through a lot of integration, but without a whole lot of integration, you want to be able to say, yeah, let me click on that entity without regard for whether it's player controlled or CGF controlled and you know, see its status. How much ammo does it have left? How much fuel does it have left? What's its task? What's its plan? And you know, let me set its position. Let me set its heading. Let me tell it to, to fly somewhere or to engage a certain target. Those are the extra advantages you get beyond just basic interoperability, beyond just my vehicle shows up on your screen, which kind of, we've solved that problem 30 years ago, the whole industry has really. But beyond that, how do you assign tasks? How do you assign roles? How do you take control of entities across systems, across simulators? So it's interesting that platforms are among us already, and and you you referenced the Gladiator program as something that's actually used a platform approach, which hadn't actually occurred to me. (laughs) It was was shameful, really. Absolutely. Um, that is a program that's predominantly air, and they'll probably say, yes, but we're multi-domain air. Mm-hmm. If you're where the future is, you know, in programs like DSAP, DSEP, I suppose, yes. looking at a common platform first without knowing what its actual use case is necessarily, yeah. what, what's your sort of <clears throat> tips or advice for the, the approach? Is it more of the same, or do we have to rethink right. how we do this? Again. Yeah, you know, um, I think that's what they're trying to figure out right now. You know, we've we've been involved in some of the industry engagements, you know, just providing advice and all that as they've reached out to industry to do that. And I mean, what we do is just try to give our, our best advice, right? We talk about some of the, some of the topics we've just talked about here, the, the trade-offs between the what do you get by dictating common platform across multiple domains and what do you give up by doing that and which which trade-off is right. So I think it's a little early to tell what's going on there, but I think one of the one of the issues that they're, uh, I, you know, I I think that part of what that program is one of their goals really is to achieve some commonality, you know, and probably commonality across simulation platform is one of the is one of the most important pieces of that. But I think their biggest questions now are more of getting back to the first couple of things I talked about in this conversation, which is how far do you go and where do you draw the line? Do you think of it as one common platform? that encompasses not only most of what I've been talking about, which is the simulation platform, but also the interoperability platform and the deployment platform. Do you think of that as all one thing? Do you have a sort of a simulation as a service uh, platform, for lack of a better word, that various folks can plug into so that somebody can go to a web page and log in and say, okay, I want to play this exercise now without having to go install a bunch of stuff, right? Is that, you know, that's a potential goal. And to do that, it's not just about, oh, how does my flight dynamics plug into the simulation engine? It's also like, how does my application plug into the the mechanism that the simulation as a service system uses for launch and for configuration? How do you have a bunch of different people log in and decide, okay, this group of 30 users are going to play in this scenario. And this group of 30 users are in a totally different world, different terrain, different everything, you know, playing elsewhere but yet still managed by a common system, by a common deployment platform. And I think that's kind of what they've been, a lot of what they've been asking about. Where do we draw the line? Do we need, if we choose a common simulation platform, kind of like Gladiator has, does that dictate that we have to use a particular deployment platform? Does that come with it? Or does it, or should we go to a different vendor to, to get that? You know, or should we, should we have a different strategy? The advice I gave them, and again, this is a little bit higher level than, than, than we, most of what we've been talking about, is that, you know, these three things are separable. You don't need to have them come from a single vendor or from a single, you know, they don't have to be part of a, part of the same platform, but you probably do want, you know, almost by definition, you need, you need a common interoperability platform because whether, whether applications are built on the same simulation platform or not, whether they're using the same engine, the same game engine, the same, same simulation engine, they need to be able to talk to each other. So you need something like an HLA or a DIS, or, you know, we've been proposing a new scalability platform that we built called Legion. 
Uh, we've been trying to create a standard based on, on what we've done for that through this ISO community. But something like that, something that is engine agnostic, that multiple simulation engines can plug into is almost, I think, required. And historically, that's been HLA. That may continue to be HLA or may you know turn out to be something more modern and cloud-friendly and that's built more in the way that massively multiplayer online games have been built. You've come straight to the next, that's probably the final question I want to ask okay. is where standards and all this, is it, yeah, is it yeah. we need to be clever with what we've got or do we need to redesign some standards? So let me, let me come back to this in a second, if you don't mind, because to finish the thought I had here, that regardless of the answer to that question, I think there's widespread agreement across the entire industry that you need something, right? If you want to do multi-domain, if you want to allow multiple engines, multiple simulation engines to talk to each other, of course you need some kind of a standard or some kind of an architecture that they need to kind of plug into in order to talk to each other. And like I said, something like HLA has, has met that need for a long time. Uh, I think it's an open question about whether that you know will continue to or whether we need to go to something different. So again, widespread agreement about needing a common interoperability framework of some kind, right? Reasonable, but not super widespread agreement about whether the benefits of having a common simulation platform on top of the interoperability platform is the right thing. Do you really dictate a single simulation platform or do you still need to leave room to mix and match and say, well, you know, these applications really should be built on this plat this simulation platform because it's got some features that are targeted for some particular use case, again, whether it's EW or something, sensors or whatever. And again, you know, my advice on that is that, you know, the more constrained your use case is, right, the easier it is to say, yes, a common platform is the right answer. And I don't need the, the, the I don't want to deal with the downsides of correlation when you have heterogeneous systems. And the more broad your use case is, so if you're thinking as an entire enterprise, you know, you're the UK armed forces as a whole or the US armed forces as a whole, I think it would be tough for anybody to be so arrogant to argue, oh, our, our stuff does everything. You don't need anything else. We would never say that. <laughs> so I think it's inevitable that the policy that any policymaker would put put together would would at least leave open the possibility of using different simulation platforms for different parts of their use case, even if there's sort of encouragement to say, okay, but where possible, try to use commonality. We don't want 100 different simulators built on 100 different platforms or 100 different engines or 100 different IGs or whatever. That sort of creates chaos and a lack of correlation that for not good enough reasons. It may end up necking down to two or three though, you know, rather than one, where it's like, okay, yeah, you know, this platform is better for certain use cases. This platform is better for other use cases. We're going to our common policy is going to is going to be to encourage simulation developers to use one one of those two or three approved platforms. I mean, that's what I wondered. In in each of these layers, you might have legacy technology, which is sunsetting, but you still need to keep it going. You might have current yeah, yeah. current standard, and then your stuff you you're trying to bet on where the future is going to be. Now you might be wrong. Right, but it spreads your risk. So even if you're wrong about where the future technology is going to be, you've got your current as is, best of breed, or whatever you think it is, and and you migrate. A bit like the modularity thing, you you can migrate or not depending on what what you think's coming come, becoming mature. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm very much a realist that right. Anytime anybody says, "Hey, you know, the problem out there is that there's too many platforms or too many interoperability standards or whatever," I'm going to solve this problem by by creating one to unite them all. Right. I think it's a that, famous meme that says right, exactly, exactly we have right. 15 now, competing standards. Now right. you've got 16, right? <laughs> so uh, the realities of business and, and just how programs go and, and timelines of, of programs means that that'll never work. And you always have to plan for a transition. You always have to plan for a very long period of time. You know, we're not just talking about a year or two. We're talking about you know, a decade or more of time where legacy systems need to you know, cooperate with new things, even if the new things are built on newer platforms. And I think, but I think that's fine. I think this, this community has gotten used to that over all these years, right? People know that, you know, gateways and, and bridges are a necessary evil in many cases. 
or your choices are, if you have something that's better, you either have to sort of pay the cost in time and, and, and budget of migrating your older system to plug into some new framework to get some new capability, or you need to live with the fact that it's going to be missing those new capabilities, but you still can kind of bridge to the newer stuff as best you can, even if you might be sort of missing out on something. So at, at a high level, I think that scalability, the need for scalability is the thing that would drive the community to a different interoperability standard, potentially. I think that our existing standards uh, have done a very good job and have shown real longevity over you know, 25 plus years now, where people are still getting today's needs met, right, using things like HLA, you know, and, and, and it continues to evolve, right, the NetInfom, the NATOFOM, all that kind of stuff, right? It doesn't stand still. People improve it. There's new versions of these things, and they generally work well. And I don't think there's a good reason to just say, oh, yeah, well, just because it's been a bunch of years, we got to do something different, right? TCP has been around for 50 years and people still use it for everything on the internet. You know, despite the fact that the internet's evolved, you know, over 50 years, just in extraordinary ways, right? So don't kick something out just because it's old. But when there's a need to do something that can't be done on the old, on, on the old that's when you should consider that. And I think the, the killer app is scalability. I think if people need only thousands or even tens of thousands of entities, they could probably be done with existing standards. And if you need hundreds of thousands or millions of entities that are all sort of interactive and, and all moving and all high fidelity at the same time, I think that's when you start to need uh, a next generation standard. And that's probably the topic for another podcast. No, that's a great place to leave it. And as you say, um, we, we do, we have had a few chats around standards as well. So it sort of knits nicely into that. But uh, I'll just leave it. Th thank, thank you, uh, Len, for taking the time out to sort of give us a bit of a deep dive into that. I think that's really helpful with those, those three, thinking about the platforms in that way. And obviously it comes from, a, you know, the blood, sweat and tears of actually having to do it, which, you know, <laughs> it's not, not just theory. And that's what we like, like to hear. So thank you. All right. No, thanks for uh, having me. Very relevant and very pertinent to some of the discussions that are going on uh, in the backgrounds, in these these secret halls. But um, how do we leverage the power of platforms? You know, how does that encompass standards? And, you know, what does it mean for real programs, whether in the cloud or not? I think that's a really good setting for our, our Warfighter Live panel. Yeah. On that note, you know, I hope people are taking notes about about that that chat i do yeah that's bad take notes yeah. that's good it's fine <laughs> I hope taking been, notes taking notes and, and also you know agreeing or disagreeing with len i mean that, that's the whole point isn't it with us or with len with the discussion and that's what we want to bring to this debate yes we're going to have a panel it's a great panel however you know we want this to be an audience participation as well we want people sat there willing to engage and we can then share kind of a wealth of knowledge and spitball ideas i mean that is that is that fair to say that's kind of what we're trying to achieve with this yeah also with a healthy dose of levity um i think it's good it's good not to take ourselves too seriously isn't it so it's going to be the end of a wednesday we're going to make it fun that's the plan you've now over promised that now people are going to expect too much from this <laughs> it's either going to be hugely fun or we'll get cancelled one of the two about being a media personality these days, Colin, you're on a knife edge <laughs> every single tight, time you say something. Right. <laughs> Dear listener, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, this is the last, but don't worry, fear not. Uh, season two is, is in the works and is something to be announced in the near future. Anything left for you, Colin? No, please, uh, please do visit the LinkedIn page uh, where we sort of post regular updates and do spread the word. Uh, as I say, we'll, we'll probably take, there's a few more, uh, special episodes coming up to to keep you guys interested uh, as we sort of plan for the next uh, the next season but uh, that's all from us for now that's all fighter podcast on linkedin cheers